And I remember saying to him, well, I can't quit me any more than I already have. Oh, Elise, <gasps> I don't think you told me yeah. that. I can't oh, quit well, me yes, any more than, than I already have. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. If you have a book you know you need to write, but every time you try to sit down and actually put words on the page, you end up frustrated or confused about what you're actually doing, our Prepare to Publish self-study course is an affordable and easy way to finally finish that book you've always wanted to write. Prepare to Publish self-study is a 90-day self-guided program that walks you through the process of outlining your book and finishing your book proposal document, which is the key document to getting agents and publishers to read your work. When you sign up for Prepare to Publish Self-Study, you get a digital workbook that walks you through the process of outlining your book step-by-step, teaching videos that pair with each of the assignments to make sure you're never confused or lost, and access to our resource library where you can learn things like how to find a literary agent or the differences between self-publishing and traditional publishing. At the end of the 90 days, you'll not only have a completed book outline, you'll have a finished book proposal document, which is your golden ticket to securing meetings with agents and publishers. But even more than that, this document is the Bible you will use for writing your book. Imagine a world where you didn't sit around for a decade wondering if you would ever publish your book. What if you could actually finish? That dream is closer than ever with Prepare to Publish Self-Study. To get started today, register at findyourvoice.com slash publish. On today's episode of the Find Your Voice podcast, I'm interviewing my friend and my favorite Aussie, Elise Murphy. Elise is not just my friend. She's also a bunch of other things. She is a pastor. She is a really gifted speaker. She's an author of going on two books now. She is an advocate for herself and for others. She is an incredible friend. She's super honest. You're going to get a dose of her honesty on today's episode. And she's also one of the most fun and funny people that I know, which is probably why Elise draws such a large and diverse crowd of people to her. It's impossible to not like Elise. So I can't wait to introduce her to you. Elise and I also share something in common that we'll talk about on today's episode. This is a story from my life that if you've been around for a while, you probably know about, but Elise and I both were in marriages that were abusive and made the decision to leave at some point in the relationship. So today on the episode, Elise and I are going to talk about how do you fight for your voice when you feel like there is a particular person in your life, and it doesn't have to be a partner or a spouse, but someone who you feel like is trying to take your voice from you or silence your voice, especially when this person is really, really close to you. When that person is close to you, it can feel hard to know how to know the difference between their voice and your voice. It can feel really challenging to know how to advocate for yourself. And I want to talk today about how you can use a tool like writing your story to hold on to what you know to be true about you despite what anyone else says. And there's really not a more perfect person to talk about this than Elise. So tune in for today. We're talking to Elise Murphy about how to use the power of the written word and specifically writing your story to take back your life. 
I'm talking with Elise Murphy. Hi, Elise. Hello, lovely. How are you? Oh, it's so wonderful to be chatting with you today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love talking to you. You're like my big sister that I met a few years ago and have it. always come in hand at the most opportune times. I love it. We have had, you, like you mentioned, we met many years ago. I helped you with your first book. We've had a lot of chats over the years about writing <laughs> and plenty of chats, not anything to do with writing at all. <laughs> And I think I kind of want to do that today. I want to I want to share a little bit of who Elise Murphy is with our listeners because I think you're fantastic and amazing and have so much to offer. And I also want to have a conversation with you here that I don't feel like I could have with anyone else here. And that we'll get into that in a little bit. But I'm going to start the place where we always start, which is with this question, what does it mean to you to find your voice? What a great question. I love that question so much. I think what it means to me to find my voice is to weed out all the other voices until you're left with a vocal version of what your mm. gut has always been saying. And I feel like finding your voice, it has to start with eliminating a lot of the noise. It's so hard to hear our voice in our world right now, whether it's opinions or everything else going on or just you know, life experience. And as you know, um, I am one that found my voice, then lost my voice and had to go on the journey to refind it. So I think after you kind of dig out the weeds of other people's voices and they can be good people, but their voice and they can have a good voice, but if their voice has become your voice, then you have no voice. And so for me, yeah. finding my voice has been about finding the thing that is authentic to me rather than what I'd heard around me. And you have helped me do that. So that's why I love you. Oh, I love that. What are some of those voices that we, that we use to replace our own voice? What do they look like? Practically speaking, mm. like I'm thinking just knowing you, I can pick out a couple. Yeah. They, they also like run a spectrum. <laughs> who is what who are you talking about, Ellie? <laughs> <laughs> totally. But just practically speaking, like who and what are the people and things in our life that become the voice for us? hundred percent. Yeah. I think that for me, I think you look around you and I think when you start to look around you, you know, there's this thing that my therapist did one day and I, it's always stuck with me and because she's done it a few times. As you know, I am can tend to be a very – okay, I'm an extrovert. I'm a party person. I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I can often find myself saying yes to too many things and be running into my therapist's office late because I had said yes to five different things or just yeah. overwhelmed and frazzled. And it's been a real practice for me to find my breath. And I think before you find your voice, you have to find your breath and you have to come back to that grounding place. And I ran into her office one day and and she was like, oh, okay, you know what? We're going to do an exercise before we start. And she made me close my eyes and take five deep breaths. And we went around and people might know this activity, but thinking, and she said, what do you hear? And I had to still myself long enough to hear things. And suddenly I could hear the cars on the freeway. Suddenly I could hear the person shuffling around in the office next to us. And then I could hear mm. a clock. And she said, Elise, you can always hear a clock. If you steal yourself for long enough, for some reason, you can always hear a clock. And I want you to, when you get frazzled, stop long enough to find the clock so that then you can hear what your gut is saying. And so for mm. me, some of those other voices, and I know that's not the practical part, but I think sometimes it can be so hard to even know what the voices are until we still ourselves enough and take enough time and enough margin and enough breath 
Um, and sometimes that's literally, and sometimes that's just that slowing down of the pace to really assess things. We, we're not very good at assessing things these days until we have a blow up situation where we're like forced to. Yeah. So for me, some of those voices would be, I've grown up as a pastor's kid my whole life and actually went into ministry as well um, and love the church. Um, and I'm also very aware of the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church. And I know that over my life, I have taken thoughts from the pulpit and made it my theology. And so that has been one of the voices that I have had to take to God with my relationship with God. And I know everyone's faith looks different, but for me to say, hey God, which voice is yours? To actually figure out what's even God's voice before I even find out my voice. What are the other voices that I'm mixing together that, that like, that aren't actually accurate representations of God, of the people around me. And then from there, I can often be looking for the validation of people. The validation voice is a huge one when we're looking for it from someone else rather than than having a deficit of it. So we're looking for it in other places. And so whatever we say is just to get validation. That can be a voice. I think that the negative voices that you've heard over your life, even if that person's no longer in your life, can still be ringing and echoing years later. I think that's a voice. Totally. What do you think are some of the voices? I mean, some of the stuff you're mentioning, but like family members is huge, especially our parents. I think Mm -hmm. even, even for those of us who, or those people who are listening, who feel like they've kind of like cut themselves off from their family or they've moved on, or they're not really that close Mm -hmm. to their family. Even that can almost be like a reaction against a voice, or we can always have the voice of a parent in our head wondering, and we're wondering like, are they proud of me? Do they, that's, I think just human nature. So that's a big one. Totally. I think church, I think you mentioned that and it's a really important, it's an important one to mention because it's so easy to take whatever faith is your faith, to take the voices of others, assume it's a voice of God and kind of use it as a mm-hmm. way to replace mm-hmm. finding your own voice. And totally, I think that it's a path that we all have to walk at some point in our life. It's part of being a human being that we have to figure out, you know, what do I think? What's my worldview? How do I process what happens to me. And if we're only adopting what someone else has said, then we're, we've never really done that work. And it can be really dangerous because we can end up, you know, trusting, even like you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, sometimes people have good intentions, but that doesn't mean that their opinion about your life mm-hmm. is worthwhile for you yeah. or helpful. I think sometimes we can hide behind the voice of other people as an excuse to not find our own voice. Like it's totally. so easy to take someone else's perspective of life and make it mine. We've seen it run rampant last year with so yeah. much actually coming to the front of having to face some ugly truths that we created as our voice because we didn't go on a journey to find what's true, yeah. to find our own voice, to find what do I believe. We've taken somebody else's belief and made it our own. That's how you get systemic racism. That's how you get so many other issues. And we have to go on a journey to find our voice, which which goes straight through the battlefield of yeah. truth. Yeah, there's just no getting around nope. the messiness of that. It's so messy. Ugh. Okay, so that's a perfect segue to talk about. I actually feel like you should give a little bit of background to people who are listening who are just learning about you for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's so important to the other topics that we're going to talk about. And the reason I said messiness is a perfect transition is because My life your is first messy. book, yeah, well, <laughs> all of our lives are messy. No, right. because I the journey that you took as an author when you wrote your first book was the mm-hmm. journey from perfection 
under the umbrella of being a pastor's daughter, moving from this idea that I have to live up to this certain standard because I'm a pastor's daughter to being more truthful and real about who you really are. And that was, that was your first book. You've obviously taken that journey even further now, but can you give listeners a sense of like what life was like for you growing up and, and yeah, as a background? I'd love to. I grew up in Australia in a place called the Shire, nothing to do with Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And my dad uh, was on staff at Hillsong for a bunch of years till I was seven. Then we moved to the South part of Sydney and took over a church there. So I was literally born on the front row of a church, like not yeah. literally actually, that would have been speaking of messy, but <laughs> I, <laughs> wow, traumatic, but I have grown up. It's been my worldview my whole life. Yeah. And so I wanted to grow up when I was a kid. I wanted to be three things. And this was in the book that you helped me write. It was, I wanted to be famous or I wanted to be Judge Judy or I wanted to be in ministry. Kardashians <laughs> went around. I didn't know I could be famous. Once I figured out how long it took to become a judge, I was like, oh, I'm good. And my name is yeah. definitely not Judy. <laughs> and then I was like, I, I knew I knew this. I knew that if God was real and I don't remember a time I didn't believe that. And again, a lot of that is just how I grew up. I know other people don't grow up in that so are on their own journey for that. But for me, I had always grown up with a sense of knowing I know God's real and I know life's meant to be more fun than I see around me in church. And so, and my family actually did ministry very well. My mom and my dad always made sure it was fun. They always tried to put family first and they did the best that they could. And I'm so grateful for that. And I grew up with this sense of if God's real, then why wouldn't I want to spend my life helping people find him and also find their best life? and show them you can have both. And so from as a little girl, Mm -hmm. I remember wanting that. And that uh, journey for me, taking very precarious turns and finding myself in a lot of messy situations, not because I was rebellious. I know that can be some people's story, but I really wasn't. I was just curious. And and so I had a lot of questions. I was always that kid with my hand up and had, I I have a question. Why? (laughs) Why? I was, they loved me, obviously. (laughs) But that was in church and school and And I was always just wanted to be around people. And so it didn't take long for, you know, uh, when I got out of school, I did Bible college. I was either going to do psychology or Bible college. And because I had a broken heart in uh, high school, I was like, well, Bible college it is. So (laughs) (laughs) they say don't make life decisions when you've got a broken heart. Well, sometimes you can't help that. All my life decisions have been made when I've had a broken heart. Right. (laughs) Maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. Who knows? But oh. I did Bible college and then started working for my dad and quickly was kind of helping him run the, run the church. And it was in that time that my I was speaking a lot and I was starting to travel and speak and preach and whatnot. And I would always know I had a story because I had so many stories as part of living a curious life. But I never quite could pinpoint it. One day my dad said, Elise, you should write your stories down. Well, the next week mm-hmm. I had like 10 stories and they weren't bullet point stories. They were like five pages each. And he was like, Elise, you're a writer. And that was the first time that somebody had mentioned that I could be a writer. I remember I did did school. I was good at English, but you don't think about English class as a creative writing class. That's a part of English. That's not a thing in a sense. Well, I didn't think it was. And so my dad, ever the strategist, the next day came to me with a book proposal, like a chapter, chapter titles. And I wrote that book in two weeks. And then uh, on a trip in America, publishing company was like we want to publish you I won't mention their name terrible experience but that's fine Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but the silver lining that's when I met you and you helped me at that time you were married Mm -hmm. and I was just a little knucklehead kid that was like I'm gonna tell 
my truth. And the book was called Confessions of a Church Kid because I kept finding that as I was speaking, I would talk honestly. And it was about 80% honest, but that was more honest than a lot of people had been in church. And so I'd have all these kids come up to me and be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that we could talk about messy situations. Yeah. I I didn't know we could talk about drinking or we could talk about dating dating and mess ups. And the fact that I really sometimes question God and I'm like, is this real? Or am I like just like in some cult? Like what's happening? (laughs) Who knows? Both could be true. Who knows? Gosh, it's so funny when you look back on your like the I questions know. you asked at 18. Because you're like, that was that's a terrifying question back then, but now it's like, ah, eh, probably both. Yeah, um, probably both. We're fine. <laughs> yeah. And so that book was published and then wasn't a great experience um, because I quickly realized that the more truthful I was, the more other people couldn't handle it. Yes. And so especially I, yes. in the publishing world when you have to sort of pick a path. So your book Obviously, it's called Confessions of a Church Kid. It's a quote-unquote Christian go, book. Don't go try and find it. It's not on the shelves anymore, fam. Uh, yeah. I took it Sorry. off. <laughs> so I, was, but um, I, will, I am going to re-release it. But so. I say the title just to say it's obvious when you hear the title that this is yes. a book that's going to fit in the Christian publishing path. Definitely. So you publish with a Christian publisher. But then I've had this experience too, Elise, where – when you publish with a Christian publisher, there are just certain things. They're like their list of topics that you're like, mm-hmm. nope, nope, can't nope. Talk can't about. talk about this, yeah. this, or this. Yeah. And that's what happened to you. You mm-hmm. got censored. Totally. And it was the week before we'd done all the pre-sales. By this stage, I was living in LA and working for a church in LA. And the week of someone was flicking through the book and saw in the thank yous a mention of champagne. <laughs> I'm Australian. And they took the books off the shelves and reprinted the whole thing without that word. And so some people just to this day never got their book and they got a refund months later. And so it was just a horrible experience. And the more I was truthful, the more I started learning, I could be truthful with a filter, which is that yes. true? It's you not know? even a, that's not a thing. It's an is oxymoron. It's but- meant to be exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. You can't say something is like pure if it's got a little bit of a, stain on it and you can't say something is truth if it has a little bit of a lie in it like it's yeah and I don't know you can gauge with me how your comfort level in talking about this but I have started talking about this on Instagram Mm -hmm. recently against my better judgment but strangely (laughs) this is people are like thank you thank you thank you for finally saying this because one of the things I'm calling out having grown up in the church is how we create this environment where we tell people it's not, this is not safe here to tell the truth about what's Mm -hmm. going on with you. And we create an environment where people have to hide and lie. Mm -hmm. And that always produces shame and shame Mm -hmm. produces even more hiding and more lying. Mm -hmm. And then we're freaking confused Mm -hmm. why pastors are having a thousand affairs and stealing money from the church and hiring prostitutes. And I'm telling you like this stuff is happening all over the place. Like it's Mm -hmm. not, you know, I got a few comments on Instagram from people who are like, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because one pastor falls from grace. I'm like, this is not one pastor falling mm-hmm. from grace. This is pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor mm-hmm. who's being outed and confronted. And I, yeah. I'm just like, if you're part of a faith community, you have to ask yourself, how are we contributing to yeah. creating this environment? And, totally. And how can I be a part of reshaping it into something different. Totally. And I I think I have, I have an interesting perspective, which you and I've talked about, and I'm totally fine to talk about it. 
is, and that is, uh, so my dad is a, has a coaching company called Lead Escape and he works with uh, pastors and movements of churches all around the world. So he works with a lot of smaller church pastors. So it's interesting to get his perspective on like, he's like, it's almost the bigger the church gets, the more danger yeah. there is for that because he's like, at least like there's a lot of these smaller churches, these pastors that really, it is so pure. They're like, I want to just help people. I want to like, yeah. he, so, th- so that's it. So to me, I've got to hold on to that, that I'm like, there are places out there that are safe places of worship of people that want to come and bring their imperfections and have sure. a community and see each other and know each other. Just like there are that, we also can't say, well, just because one is ousted doesn't mean you threw the baby out with the bathwater. We also have to be aware and uh, tell the truth about the fact that exactly what you just said, it is more than one. It is a, yes. it's its own pandemic in a sense. It is, um, it is an epidemic. For and sure. so I think that the thing is, is that we have created this celebrity culture in church, which is not a shock. It's not a new term for people. It's celebrity church culture. And then we've blamed the person we put up on a pedestal, but we've been doing it since the Bible. Like we've been doing it since like David, since all these other people Mm. that I read about and we're like, we just keep doing it. And if it's not them, there's a guy in politics in Australia at the moment that a bunch of stuff's coming out about and he kept it secret for years. It's just everywhere in society. And the, the place you just wish it wasn't, but we have to admit that it is, is in the church. And yeah, yeah. And I don't know the answer except for I think we've paraded around this pedestal. Of if you're in church, you're a celebrity, and we've mm-hmm. got to stop that. That is not. If you want to be a celebrity, go to Hollywood and become an actor sure. and like go that route. The church is not the route for that. And we've created for a decade or so the route for that. So now we have to undo that. We have to unlearn. Yeah. And I also think as individuals, I'll tell you my theory on how, like, as an individual, especially if you're part of a faith community, this is for everybody, but especially if you're part of a faith community, this is how you combat this epidemic. And at least I'm curious to hear your perspective yeah. on my thoughts. My thought is part of how we combat this is by finding our voice. It's by yes. saying, I'm not going to take what some dude on a stage says to me from up there as ultimate absolute truth about my life. His interpretation of what he thinks God says for me or has for me or whatever is just his interpretation. It is my responsibility to do exactly what you talked about at the beginning of this conversation, take some deep breaths, tune in with myself, ask the hard questions, get curious, practice and play with things, check back in with who, you know, my higher power, my divine source, whatever that means, and ask like, is this, is this working, you know, or is there something else that, that you want from me? Learn to surrender. Like that's the real, to me, the real spiritual path and spiritual walk. And far too many of us, I think are relaxing Mm -hmm. into this idea that someone else is going to tell me Totally. The well, that's the solution that's, for my life. I yeah. totally agree. I think we've, that's what I was saying at the start of we've, mi- we've mixed up voices as an excuse to not find our own. Yes. And I think it's easy for me to say, well, whatever the preacher said, that's what God says. But as a preacher, not everything I say is Bible. Like, <laughs> I'm so messed up that, like, I'll preach and I have totally preached passive aggressively. Now, I really try not to do that anymore. And I, I think I'm, like, I've very much matured in it. And honestly, the more I find my voice, the more I don't have to passive aggressively preach. 
Sure. Because you can just tune in with what the what's the message that's coming through you and share that with the audience. That's without, the thing. Yeah. And we, if we and if people, the more we take the preacher's voice, just as the example, as God's voice, the less we know God. Because mm. in order for me to know someone's voice, I have to know them. Ali, the reason I know your voice, you could call me and say, hey, and I'd know who you are. But yeah. if like my mom calls me, even usually like that's a f- sixth sense or whatever before she calls, I know she's back there. But like <laughs> when you know call. someone well, you know their voice. <laughs> and so, so many of us know our preacher's voice better than we know the voice of God. That's why we're mm. mixing up. A preacher says something that must be God. Really? Really? Preach. Well, that's, to me, that's not what God said because I know God's voice. And if we yeah. want to actually hear the whisper of God, we've got to be close enough to feel his breath. And so I think that you have to have a tight relationship with God in the sense that you stop and breathe, then you feel the breath of God in something. And all that means for me, honestly, is just I feel that peace. You know yeah. when something like let peace, a youth leader once said to me, let peace be your umpire. And I've never forgotten it. Because so often we get in this chaotic environment and then we have this big choice to make and then we just go to the, uh, just just do this. But if yeah. actually you sit long enough, and we don't like doing that, that's the reason. We've got so many issues. <laughs> but if we sit long enough, then peace is usually just a, whatever way of saying it's the voice of God. And I know that peace yeah. is on something, whether it's the easy decision or the hard decision. And if we keep looking for a pastor to be our peace, then we're never going to know and find the voice of God and therefore never find our own voice. Our true peace. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So, I don't Such, know if that answered your question. <laughs> you did. No, you completely did. And I'm really glad that we had this part of the conversation totally. because I, so many people are asking me about this. And what's funny is I've avoided talking about my faith completely sure. because it feels really vulnerable to talk about your faith, first of all. And second of all, I'm like, there are just so many things I want to say about the church that I feel like are going to get me into trouble. And so I get it. Yeah. No, trust me. I work. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, these you are the conversations know. that people need to have. And so, yeah. and especially, you know, speaking of the from, shame cycle and feeling like yeah. you have to hide things, we've yeah. got to be able to say there's a problem here without being shut down or censored. Yeah. And in the same breath, if we're not talking about it, we're not processing it because part of what you taught me writing is processing. And if we're not writing, if we're not finding our voice, if we're not allowed to speak on it, we're not healing and we're not processing, we're sweeping it under the rug. And there's so much crap under that rug. Like we got to get, we got to clean that rug, man. Speaking of church and losing our voice, I want to talk to you about a particular way that I know because I know you personally and because I've I've been working with you on your next book, your upcoming yes. book. Um, I want to talk about a way that you lost your voice in mm-hmm. doesn't really necessarily have to do with the church, except for that you met this person in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. <laughs> do you, can you like, you know, get us started on the story and Sure. Why not? Yeah. You were part of it. <laughs> Called you like a bottle of wine in. I was like, well, yeah. it's done. 2017, <laughs> I was working for uh, a church in LA and was one of the pastors on staff, loving life. And we'll actually bring it back to 2015. Had just gotten out of a situationship, which speaking of messy moments when I'm on a book tour, 
called Confessions of a Church Kid and like in a situation ship <laughs> at 2 a.m. You all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Fun times. And so I had gotten out of that and was like, yes, I'm going to do the next one right. Meet our worship leader. So hot. It's insane. And was like, yes, I pick him. <laughs> like yeah. as Pokemon. I choose you. And we started dating and it went very quickly, which happens a lot of the time. We, I always say this, I always say we didn't cross any physical boundaries. I did that one right, in a sense, whatever that is. I did that one the way I thought I equated if I do things the right way, as you know, Ali, if I had the right yeah. formula, it was meant to turn out right. And so it was right in my formula, right? And yeah, totally. we didn't cross any emotional boundaries at all. I didn't really, he was very good at hiding the real the real him, the real issues. And I was very good at pushing down and suppressing the red flags. Let me, and, hold on. Let me give yeah. like a really brief context because people who are listening who didn't grow up in evangelical Christian yes. church are going to be really confused. Love it. <laughs> but Elise and I share this in common that we grew up in a church culture that taught us not to have sex until we were married. And so mm-hmm. we were very dutiful Christian girls who mm-hmm. we, well, we knew the rules Yep. You may have, may have quote unquote, pushed the boundaries <laughs> at different points, but you and I both, when we got like married, I said, like I said, I was curious. <laughs> totally. I mean, you're human. You're, you're exactly. a grown woman. Yeah. Anyway, we, this is not woman. a podcast about that, but yeah, exactly. Anyway, but that's what, that's um, what, but yeah. But yes. You and I both, when we met our first husbands, mm-hmm. can you say that? Yeah. That's weird, yeah. Wow. We're we the first, first, first wives club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we both were like, okay, and we're waiting until we're married to have sex. Totally. That's what you do when you're a Christian. That's and what you do. Pastor. That yeah. is what you do. Insert claps in between each word. And yeah, so he proposed uh, on stage at our church in front of everybody right after I'd finished speaking one night. And we got married. That was in the June of 2016. We got married in the January 2017. And it very quickly fell apart. On our honeymoon, he quit his job and said God had told him to quit his job. And then he was going out every single night and I was kind of left with the responsibility of two people in a marriage that was meant to help me. And every time I would, I would bring it up, every time I would address it, I'd get shut down. And that's when mm-hmm. the emotional abuse, it kind of started during the, when we were engaged, but you know, you tell yourself again, this is part of losing your voice when you start to correct your own voice. That's how it kind of starts. I think of like, it'll be okay once we're married. Because yeah. everyone knows marriage fixes things, <laughs> and if that doesn't fix it, then have a baby. Because that, <laughs> and then that'll just fix it. Don't yeah. worry, guys. We didn't go. Yeah. I, I didn't thank God, um, honestly. But I uh, was very quick and started falling apart. And by the December of that year, we'd split up once, then got back together. And I was so desperate to hold on to my marriage. I was begging God to save my marriage. Mm. And this is where the thoughts from the pulpit had become my theology and God just messed it all up because I don't like God ended up saving me from my marriage rather than saving my marriage. That was a marriage that wasn't a marriage in a sense. And so what I had grown up to believe of just pushed through, I fully believe in committing and getting through the hard times, but you can't be married by yourself. And so there's a difference between a hard times, between hard times and abuse. abuse. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. You and I quickly learned terms like narcissism and gaslighting Gaslighting. and yeah. Flying monkeys. I learned that one from you the other day. Fun times. It reminds Mind me of monkeys. The Wizard of Oz, but it, it's it's from that movie. That's what it's from. The image oh. of the narcissist having 
his or her little flying monkeys. They're their little fly soldiers, you know, who go like send out the messages or take care of business or, and the flying monkeys don't ever know that they're the flying monkeys, but they're the the narcissist is controlling this particular group of people who are very loyal to the narcissist Mm -hmm. and having them go kind of do their dirty work. So absolutely. But for me, uh, Again, the girl that was quite known as just got married in church, still speaking as the authentic one. I'm now preaching about this marriage that is behind the scenes falling apart. Mm. And it's so amazing how when you have a title like a pastor, people just think you know answers to everything. And so I remember giving marriage advice and going home to a husband that was stonewalling me. And I was like, this is the worst. And we broke up after I found out he had stolen my identity. Read the book to find more information on that. That'll, and that'll do it. <laughs> that'll end the marriage. <laughs> right. That'll do it. Well, you know what? It should have, but it didn't. Not even that. Oh. And that was really where the voice. So from there, it was if I just be a little quieter, hmm. then I won't, I won't mess up the situation. I won't. I know I'm messy, but I don't want to mess this up with my mess, thinking it was still me. Because when someone's abused and like to that level as well, you start to think, I literally thought I was a narcissist. I walked into my therapist's office and said, I'm a narcissist. You and I both did this. I don't know if Mm -hmm. it's like a weird thing narcissists do where they convince the person they're with that they're narcissists, but yeah, I was, I did the same thing too. And my therapist said to me, I think what you're Yours said to you, which is if you're asking if you're a narcissist, you're not a you're narcissist. Not a narcissist. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, good point. All right. And then yeah, as okay. I went on a – again, we didn't talk about abuse in church. It's not yeah. – you, you, marriage is what you see around you. And there, I didn't have the healthiest marriages around me when I was going through this, honestly. And so for me, I just equated marriage to, yeah, we all do hard things. I didn't yeah. realize that everyone had settled for hard things and – called it a test from God in a sense. And so I was breaking and I was just, uh, and church was a place that I worked. It wasn't a home anymore because I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't able to allow my emotions out. And for me, that's as soon as we didn't, we suppress things again, that's another moment that your voice gets quieter. And so, yeah. What, what role did the other voices in the church play Mm -hmm in your slow progression of silencing your own voice? Mm -hmm. For me, it started with like always look at yourself first, which is a really good, a great piece of advice. But that piece of advice with a certain pastor got to the point of, well, what are you doing? Well, what are you doing? Well, what are you doing? And it was never acknowledged abuse that was being done to me. And so fix yourself, fix yourself. Now on that process, I grew a lot. I really did. And so it got to a point though that that became detrimental because yes. it, because then it, in the, it was the narrative in my mind, I must have done something. And then yep. the day that I kind of walked into church and was crying on the front row and a pastor leaned over and I thought they were about to hug me and they were like, hey, this is church. It's not a place to cry. Oh, I know God. I'm laughing about it now, but you it's just You told me the story so for the book and I was just like, wild. Yeah. It was so wild that I was like, that was the moment <clears> for me that you're like, excuse I no me, longer, if yeah. this isn't a place to cry, then where is <laughs> exactly you point the, me day, in the direction? That's the thing, the though. Crying room? That is the is there a crying room? Is that the nursery? <laughs> like, can I go in the kids? I want to be a kids' leader now. But I remember that day that I got told not to cry in church was the day that I couldn't find home in my home because my husband never wanted me there and church was no longer a home. I became homeless. 
And mm-hmm. I had a roof over my head in both places, but you can be emotionally, spiritually homeless. And yeah. that's where I that's where I got lost. That's where I lost my voice, I think. And so I just kept trying to be better, do better, be less, be more, be whatever he asked me to be. And he kept asking me to give up things. He wasn't overt about it, but I ended up literally quitting my job. And then I came home and told him, he's like, why would you quit your job? It's not the job, it's you. And I remember saying to him, well, I can't quit me any more than I already have. Oh, Elise. <gasps> I don't yeah. think you told me that. Oh, well, yes. I can't we quit me any more than, than I already have. Someone remember oh, that and make sure I put it in my book. <laughs> yeah. So that was the day that I realized, okay, this is, this, this ain't it. And yeah. He left a second time and I had in, in there so many other stories, gosh, as you know, but my dad was in town and I was in the middle of a two day TV shoot or film shoot. And in between the two day film shoot, my dad sat with me I went to divorcepapers.com. Turns out that's a thing. <laughs> and <laughs> the things you Google, right? uh, the things you Google, we could even go into that the first time yeah. you Google, how do you get a divorce in California? How do you hire a divorce attorney mm-hmm. in Tennessee? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. yep. And so I uh, filed for divorce and that is a whole story in itself. Met him at the courthouse, traumatic. And that was the first time I think that I, I feel like I actually saw him for who he was. The scales had fallen off my eyes because still at that point, I was like, why doesn't he love me? And yeah. what happened at the courthouse, just that was what revealed to me that, oh, this is, this is for me, not for him. Like this is it. And so... I flew back to Australia and threw myself into healing. And I remember the day I packed up my apartment. That was when I called you a bottle of wine deep. Oh, I texted you. I didn't call you. I texted you. And I was like, hey, Ali, I don't even know if it's still your number, but I knew you'd come (laughs) through a divorce. And I was like, help. And it's so funny now that I have girls that do that, women that text me. And it's those moments are precious and it's like an whenever yeah. like someone texts me if they're going through something like that in those moments I just remember I remember searching through my phone and being like I don't even know I don't know I don't know who, who to text I right now to. I don't yeah. know who I can talk to yeah you know it's funny because you and I hadn't talked in a couple of years I had watched this relationship <laughs> so out of the blue no I loved that you texted me and it was it, it brings me great joy to have a conversation, especially at the point you were at, because I didn't mm-hmm. have to try to convince no. you that it was mm-hmm. time to leave you. You were already gone yeah. um, for all intents and purposes. And so I got to just connect with you over the fact that we had this shared and tragic experience, but really like be a cheerleader for you and remind you that you were headed in the right direction and remind you to trust the sound of your own voice. And yeah. that was such a gift. But yeah, we hadn't talked in a couple of years. And so I had watched your relationship unfold online and sometimes now I'll get, I'll watch people have a relationship online and I'll get like red flags, like little, like, I don't know what you call them, like little pings about the relationship. I don't, obviously mm-hmm. don't know, but I'm mm-hmm. like, I just don't know. I had never thought that about your relationship, partly because I think he did such a good job and you did such a good job of presenting it as like so ideal, mm-hmm. which I say that to say to people who are listening, when you scroll through Instagram and it seems like other people's lives are ideal, just remember nobody, 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 nobody gets through this life without pain and grief and loss Mm -hmm. and difficulty. 
That's it. It's part of the terms and conditions of Instagram that you have to like, hey, you're going to filter some stuff, right? You're not actually going to put yeah. your life on here. Like it's, <laughs> that's the thing. But we somehow, when we're, we're the ones scrolling, we always forget that. And so that's yeah. like, I think we have, when we're not using our voice, I think we have the tendency to either go silent or to overcompensate and do what I did by projecting perfection. And yeah. I think those are usually the ways because no one's life is all good. No one's relationship is all good. And you, you said something that is so true. You're like, I always can't help but think. And this is obviously like a stereotype, but it's not too far from yeah. the truth that the longer the caption, the yeah. more someone's the, hiding. The more someone talks about their significant other online and the more prolific they are the about their admiration for them. I'm just like, wow, you must have a ter- terrible relationship. <laughs> Only it's because so I, say, I speak from experience because I did that Same. in my, my marriage um, that was so abusive to stroke his ego, to try to get him to try to resolve like whatever tension there was in the house or try to get him to calm yeah. down after a fight. I would, and I would also, you, you learn as a victim of abuse to put yourself underneath the person constantly mm. to make sure that, you know, they always know that they're the ones who are in control in the situation. Yeah. And that's one way posting constantly about your significant other online and how amazing they are and how much you right. admire them is one way of putting yourself underneath the person. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. What belief systems, what cultural belief systems from the church, from other voices that you took on, do you feel like played a role in you letting go of your own voice in that relationship? Oh, there was a few things. I think that a part of it was my own, what I had grown up, again, taking someone's thought or suggestion and making it my theology yeah. of the men yes. are in a relationship, the guy is in control that like his voice is my voice and to become one, you know, that's what we learn in church. And I still believe that like that marriage is the most powerful union. Like I really do believe that. Um, but I want safety from a marriage, but I don't want someone to speak for me. And I think that men can provide that safety just as much as we provide that safety. And I don't have to get masculine by whatever to be like a man, but I, my power is in who I am and is in my voice. And so I started to mm. lose that because honestly, and honestly, some, some of the abuse and the emotional abuse of that just makes you question everything and gaslighting will do that. And so I started to not trust my own voice. I trusted his voice more than I trusted mine. And yeah. um, I think that was the voices, his voice of, of gaslighting, honestly, a lot of that. And then those suggestions at the start of like, hey, what can you do better or what, where can you improve? And, and what I'd heard about marriage, I think I'm, again, I know me, so I know I'm a very extreme human. So when someone's like marriage is about compromise, compromise is not losing yourself, but somewhere along mm-hmm. the way, because he wasn't compromising, I just kept compromising. And rather than yeah. standing up and saying this isn't okay, um, I stepped aside. And so yeah. that was part of my healing journey is to quit stepping aside and just like take back those places and step up. And yeah, I mean, similar, similarly for me, yeah. this idea that God hates divorce was a phrase that would ring in my mind mm-hmm. all the time. And So what I did mentally is I shut the door on the idea that divorce was an option or a possibility. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Divorce isn't an option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so because of that, you find yourself in an abusive relationship, twisting yourself into knots to make the abuse work Mm -hmm. for you. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Like yes. I, similar to your moment where you were like, I can't, can't quit being me anymore than I already have. I have a moment. I remember so vividly a whole set of circumstances that led up to this moment, but I remember standing in the doorway of a room and looking at him and him telling me how things were going to go. Wow. And I just remember thinking to myself, I can either do what he says and I will have an okay life or I can fight him and I will be miserable forever. And so I, wow. that was the moment that it flipped for me. I, from that point on until the divorce process started, wow. I was his. And it wasn't until I was like, this is not worth the trade anymore that yes. things started to unravel for me. Yeah. For me, it was like, as I, anytime, so like the second apartment that we were in, he was again going out this time to the studio, was recording stuff. And I would wake up every single night and he wouldn't be there. And to wake up every night and he says at 9 p.m. I'm only going to be gone for an hour and you wake up at 2 a.m. every single night and he's still not there. But I knew if I was to call him, I'd get in trouble. And so I was like, what's worse if I – and I would call it complaining again if I'd complain, which is not what I was doing. Like it was – asking him to be with me. But it's what he told you you It's what he told me I was doing. And so for me it was that moment of like – I would have these gut-wrenching moments of do I call and risk him not talking to me again? One night I woke up at 5 a.m. to uh, the fire alarm in the building going off and he wasn't home and I had to evacuate my, like by myself. And it, obviously it was just a fire alarm moment, but it was just one of those reality moments of he isn't going to be here. And yet if I use my voice to ask him to be here, it's going to get shut down anyway. So yeah, it's you, you're between a rock and a hard place and then you, just, you never win. There's a kind of learned helplessness that you mm-hmm. find yeah. when you're in that sort of a relationship too, where yeah. you, just like I mentioned a minute ago, you realize that actually the the quote unquote best life that you're going to have is just keeping your mouth shut and doing mm-hmm. what you're told. Mm-hmm. And it's really tragic when you think about it that way, but that's, totally. that is the mentality that you and I were both in for as long as we decided to stay inside of that relationship. Yep. You are working on a new book that's really exciting. You're telling the story of everything that happened to you, of, of reclaiming your life, reclaiming your voice, reclaiming yourself. I don't want to give away the title because I think it's really awesome and someone's going to take it from you. I was just about to say, don't you dare. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not telling anyone the title, but um, but the the concept of the book is how we pretend on Instagram like things are one way when really if you pull back the curtain, things mm-hmm. are the same way for all of us, which is yes. messy and human. Yes. So I'm so excited for this book. What, how has the experience of writing this book been different than the other book? I think this time, well, the last time I wrote it, wrote a book, I think I was 21 or 20. And so naturally 11 years does some stuff. And, yeah. and eight of those years being in LA definitely does some stuff. <laughs> and I, um, I just think this time I understand why I need to tell the truth. I want to tell the truth on purpose as opposed mm. to this is this this was I would say that this is the difference. Can you tell I'm a verbal processor? Yeah. Um, <laughs> is that last time I was I was telling truth to allow other people to tell their truth. So I was telling enough truth to unlock truth in other people. This time I'm telling the whole truth for me. Yeah. And if it helps people along the way, which I know it will that's amazing. And that's the other reason. But this time I'm determined to tell the whole truth on purpose, not just enough truth to help someone. And I think that when we tell truth, but with a filter, 
people wonder why they don't feel the permission to tell the truth as well. It's because something in you knows this isn't fully, like they're asking me to be fully truthful, but they're not. And so this time I know that I'm doing the thing that I'm asking other people to do. I love that. I'm not only glad that you're finally telling the truth just because I think it's, it's really healthy and healing as an individual to be able to have a space where you can tell the truth also because of the way that that gives permission and liberation to the other people who are reading and listening, but especially at least because you're a woman who is in the Christian church. I think that's a space where, especially in that space, we need people because what happens I think so often is you have the quote unquote theology of the church that's Mm -hmm. like on one side. And then Mm -hmm. when you, at least for me, this is what happened to me slowly is I put my life experience up next to it and I go, this doesn't compute. Like two plus right. two does not equal 12. And so yeah. I, something must be terribly wrong with me because I'm not having an experience that matches. Like, for example, wait till you're marriage, married to have sex and you'll have this amazing sex life. Right. And that was not my experience. So I'm like, I'm, excuse me, I'd like to raise my hand and ask, like, is everyone else going through this? Because this mm-hmm. is not what I expected. And I think having people who are in that space who are telling the truth only stands to invite people into a deeper and truer understanding of themselves and also a deeper and truer connection with God. I hope so. That that honestly is my hope. And I think last year, uh, 2020, was the first year that I kind of, not kind of, that I stepped out of full-time ministry. And I do believe, again, the voice of God is can often mess up our own church theology. I think it was God because I think that in writing this book, I need to be able to write it from a free place without mm. – um, unintentional, yeah. unintentional, but strings attached. Yep, yep. And so to be able to say, hey, I need to write this and I need to do it from a place of pure authenticity without any swaying ideas or thoughts. And again, that doesn't stop my love for the church. doesn't stop my belief in marriage. I believe in marriage more now than I ever have. Yeah. But we're only going to get there if we, if we start telling the truth. To get there, yep. we've got to actually acknowledge where we're at. Yeah. So I hope it helps people and thank you for it's helping going me to. do it. And this is going to help people, this conversation. Thank you for being honest here with us. Thanks for sharing your story. I know it's a vulnerable thing to talk about. So I'm, I appreciate you being willing to go there with us. Oh today. my gosh, Allie, I'll do whatever you ask me. <laughs> Elise, have boundaries. Stop. <laughs> oh but I seriously love you. I'm so grateful for you and I'm very grateful for our friendship. So thanks for being being the best. You too. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.